I'm here with Dr. Michael Barber. You're a professor at the Augustan Institute. And uh, I wanted to ask you about St. Paul. You've re recently yes. co-authored a book about Paul. Um, tell us about Paul. Can you tell us like a, an outline of his life? Like how many years he was in Damascus? I always get uh, confused every yeah, time. Yeah, the chronology is hard with <laughs> yeah. that. And I think, you know, that is more problematic. And there, I have a good friend, Father Gregory Tatum, has written the whole chronology of Paul's life. This gets into some real difficult technical issues. But broadly what we know is this. We know, and I'm going to draw not just from his letters here, but from the book of Acts, okay? Because there are some scholars today that think that Acts isn't reliable in giving us information about Paul. I disagree. I think there are good reasons to trust the book of Acts on details of Paul's life. And people will say things like, oh, well, the Paul of Acts is so different than the Paul of his letters. And I always want to respond to people, well, which letter? Because Paul is very different <laughs> in his various letters. It's not like we just have, you know, the letters of Paul as a sort of a monolithic amalgam uh -huh. of, you know, no, yeah. it doesn't work that way either. But um, what do we know? Well, Paul tells us that he was a Pharisee. That's really interesting. So we know that he has a Jewish background. In fact, he tells us that he was even born of the tribe of Benjamin, which is fascinating because in the Bible, there is another famous, of course, his name was Paul, but also Saul. In the Bible, there's also another Saul of Benjamin, mm. right? Mm. Before David, mm. who goes from a, a good king to a wicked king. Mm. And so Saul in the New Testament is almost the reverse of Saul in the Old Testament. Saul stood in the way of David. Saul was opposed to the anointed of the Lord, David, right? Where Saul of Tarsus, uh, who becomes Paul, of course, who becomes better known as Paul, uh, works in the opposite direction, where he leaves behind a, a life uh, where he's persecuting others uh, and where he ultimately becomes the apostle of the anointed one, which in Hebrew is Meshiach, right? Mm -hmm. Messiah. So that's a fascinating uh, dimension of Paul's story. Uh, of course, he is known as Saul. And in the book of Acts, we read about how he, in some ways, is in, involved with the martyrdom of St. Stephen, the first martyr. Uh, we read about that in Acts chapter 7 and 8, at the beginning of 8. Because that they left their garments at the feet of a young yeah, man named what Saul. A, it's a great image. I was wondering if it has some hidden biblical meaning because it seems like such a an interesting detail to have in there they yeah. right yeah i think the there are some interesting parallels in the in the story with people falling at others feet and mm -hmm. things like that in the book of acts but i think the key is that the, the the point that luke wants us to draw from this is that saul is consenting as he says yeah. to, to stephen's death and as paul says also he cast his vote against the Christians, you know. Um, now, what's interesting is Saul has this very clearly Jewish background in Acts. It says that he was brought up, he says in a speech, that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, that's amazing because Gamaliel we read about in, uh, in the book of Acts, all right? So he's one of the Jewish leaders who says, well, leave these men, the apostles, alone. You don't want to be opposing something that might be of the Lord. And if it's not of the Lord then it'll fizzle out, basically. Mm -hmm. That's a paraphrase. But what's interesting about Gamaliel is in Jewish tradition, he's well known. He's not mm -hmm. just known from the New Testament. Mm -hmm. 
He's actually known as Rabban Gamaliel, mm. which doesn't mean, you know, Rabbi means my great one or my teacher, right? Rabban means our teacher. That's how he was mm. known. And there's one uh, rabbinic uh, source that says when, the, when Rabbi, Rabban Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah ceased. Whoa. How about that? <laughs> and this is the guy that we read that Paul, you know, he, I, I was brought up at his feet. He was learning from Gamaliel in some way. He was a Pharisee. At the same time, we know he's from Tarsus. At the same time, we know that he has some kind of Italian you know, back, backdrop he, in, in the diaspora, at least. Uh, and uh, we don't really know how he ends up having Roman citizenship. He had Roman citizenship. The best explanation I've ever heard, and this is just speculation, we don't know for sure, is that his father had been a slave and then he was released. And oftentimes when you are a slave of well-to-do Roman citizens, you would also be given Roman citizenship. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that Paul's father had been a tent maker. You know, Paul was a tent maker. Mm -hmm. And that he served as a slave for somebody of significance somewhere in the diaspora. And then he was given his citizenship. And so Paul, from a young age, is brought up in Jerusalem, brought up as a Jew. Um, and so it seems that, that Paul starts off in the diaspora. He ends up back in Jerusalem. And you can imagine that that's going to give you a certain inferiority complex, right? But you he would... And all these other Jews who are around Jerusalem, right. like, I'm from Tarsus. You, know? <laughs> you don't sound like you're from Jerusalem. Right. You know? right. and, and so that might explain, this is again conjecture, but it might explain the, the, the persecution, right? Because he wants to prove to his fellow Jews, no, I really am a Jew. I may be a diaspora. I may have come mm -hmm. from the diaspora. My, I may have Roman citizenship, but gosh darn it, I'm more serious about the Torah than any of the rest yeah. of you. And just look at how serious I am. I'm going after these Christians right. who I think are blaspheming or in some way contradicting yeah. the law of Moses. Right? Hey, can you give a description of the Pharisee party movement because uh, it's it was a popular movement among the people which yes. is kind of counterintuitive to me because they're talking about all these laws and regs you got to do i mean yeah. our culture rebels at any yeah. form of religion <laughs> well okay so we have to be really careful because the way the pharisees are often talked about today is almost like they're two-dimensional characters mm -hmm. you know they're cartoons mm -hmm. and uh, there are many jewish scholars today that are actually concerned about the way Christians talk about the Pharisees. People use the term Pharisaical, you know, right. in a negative way. And for many Jews, that sounds anti-Semitic. Yeah. So it's important to remember, Paul himself was a Pharisee, right? Uh -huh. And he doesn't give us the impression that he stopped being a Jew after mm -hmm. he came to know Christ. In Galatians, he tells Peter, we are Jews by nature. We're Jews from birth is the way some translations get it. Uh, but Paul doesn't stop being a Jew. Become, by becoming a believer in Christ. He thinks he's now fulfilled in his Judaism in a way he hadn't been before, right? But he's not renouncing his Jewishness. The Pharisees were very popular in Jesus' day from what we know from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, whose writings we have, because um, for one thing, they were known for their holiness. They were known for their desire to conform their lives to the Torah. You see, in Jesus' day, the Romans had descended on Palestine, and the Romans were essentially terrorists. I mean, they, they didn't just oppress people, right? If you were a woman working out in the field, you, would, you were in danger of being raped by Roman soldiers. I mean, they would come in 
and just pillage the land, assault the people. They were, they were barbaric. The Mormons were barbaric. And the Pharisees understood well, the reason this has happened to us is because we have been keeping the law. Why are we at the hands of our enemies? Well, read Deuteronomy. If you're not faithful to the covenant, this is what's going to come upon you. And so they were teaching the people that they needed to live a life that was in conformity to the Torah. Now, this is important to understand. In the first century, there are all kinds of different Jews. Right? It's not like people say, what did, what did the Jews believe in Jesus' day? Well, which Jews are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Right? Because you got the Pharisees. They believe in life after death. They believe in resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees is a different group. They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in, in, in you know, resurrection of the dead. That's why they're sad, you see. Mm-hmm. It's a joke. <laughs> but, but you'll remember now. So the Pharisees, they were very popular because of that. And the other thing, too, is, and this is often overlooked. And I talk about this in my new, in another new book I wrote, Salvation, whatever you Catholic should know. The Pharisees were much more merciful in their application of the law than you might expect. So the Dead Sea community and the, the, the Essenes, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, basically said, if your animal falls in a pit and it's the Sabbath, you can't do any work. You got to let the animal die. Now, animals were very expensive. This is like losing your car in the first century, right? A major part of an agrarian society's economy were, especially cattle, right? So to let go of that animal meant financial ruin for a lot of the common people. And the Pharisees said, well, no, it's okay. You You can rescue the animal, which is why in the Gospels, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath and some of the Pharisees oppose him, Jesus says, well, is it okay to rescue rescue your animal? Pharisees, you think that's okay. Why is it wrong for me to heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus is actually appealing to the fact that the Pharisees were well known for their merciful application of the law, Mm -hmm. right? So they were beloved by the people and politicians wanted to get the Pharisees' approval because they knew that the people would go with the Pharisees' judgment on things. Mm -hmm. So the Pharisees end up having a very significant political role in Jesus's day. They serve on the Sanhedrin, the yeah. sort of ruling body we read about in the New Testament. And yeah. why why did they oppose Jesus? It just seemed like it's just I know preaching like daily masses and stuff. It just seemed like they're around every corner, and you're always you know, Jesus is always in conflict with them. Right. Although remember, there are Pharisees that also do accept Jesus. For example, in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus mm-hmm. is a Pharisee. Right, and yes, he has to be born from above, and he puts his foot in his mouth. You know, how can how can a man, you know, enter a second time into his mother's womb? And so the problem with Nicodemus, Jesus explains, is you know it's necessary to be born from above. The problem with Nicodemus isn't so much that he's a Pharisee, it's that he's a man. Right? Mm. Is that he's a fallen man? That's at the beginning of the chapter. Actually, John two says that um, Jesus did not trust himself to man because he knew what was in man. And then the next line is the beginning of chapter three. Now there was a man named Nicodemus. In other words, uh, here's exhibit A. Yeah. But the problem with Nicodemus isn't so much that he's a Pharisee. The problem is that he's a fallen member of yeah. humanity, right? Jesus actually says in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses's seat. Therefore, do whatever they tell you. 
That's a, one of the most neglected lines of the New Testament, that yeah. Jesus actually affirms the teaching of the Pharisees. He just yeah. goes on to say, but don't be hypocrites. Right. They're hypocrites, right? Don't be like them in that they're hypocrites. And so it's important for us to recognize that, you know, it, it, Jesus isn't just rejecting everything that the Pharisees say. In the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees are associated with greed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it seems that many Jewish leaders uh, became wealthy and, and, and there, there are problems there. But certainly Paul is a Pharisee and we get no sense from Paul's letters that he was a hypocrite. Right? Mm-hmm. He says he walked blamelessly according to the law in Philippians 3. I think he was sincere. He was sincerely wrong mm-hmm. in, in persecuting the church. But it wasn't because he was some kind of villain. You know, yeah. uh, um, He thought that the Christians were yeah. in some way blaspheming. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and, you know, a question too is like, Paul sometimes comes across as early on kind of boastful, arrogant. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you see that? transformation in his letters i always want i always forget to remember the dates of these letters to see if there was kind of a growth there yeah you know it's difficult to do that because scholars debate when we actually would place all the letters in order how we would place all the letters in order generally people accept um first thessalonians is one of the first letters of paul Mm -hmm. not the first and galatians is usually put on the earlier side but not always um Anyway, uh, I, I mean, I, I think you could, you, you could mistake some of Paul's letters for arrogance or boastfulness mm-hmm. uh, if you don't recognize that what he's boasting in is in his weakness. He's uh-huh. boasting in his sufferings, yeah, right? Yeah. So I love in 2 Corinthians, he talks about these false teachers in the church who are trying to oppose Paul. Paul is, he is hilarious. Paul is yeah. just hilarious. He refers to them as the super apostles. He's being very sarcastic. The super apostles. You know? right. And he says, you know, look, I'm, I guess, you know, I'm just not as good as them. Look at how. You know, and, I, and then he goes on to talk about all of his suffering. So what yeah. authenticates his apostleship is the fact that he, one, he doesn't take anything from anyone. He, he works as a tent maker. Yeah. People forget this, right? Paul is working as a tent maker as he's proclaiming the gospel, he talks about this, for example, in the Th- Thessalonian correspondence, how he was he was working day and night as he proclaimed the gospel. We read in the book of Acts how he would basically set up shop in the town as a tent maker. He's not going in as some kind of traveling pastor and just you know staying at a directory during the week. No, he's out there in the marketplace. Yeah. And that's a great lesson for, I think, all of us that you know you, you don't need to be a priest. You don't need to be a deacon to proclaim the gospel. Mm-hmm. Paul's just working in the marketplace every day. Right. And people are coming in, getting tents made, and he's sharing with them the gospel. And then, of course, on the synagogue, on the Sabbath, he's speaking in the synagogues, right? But, but it seems during the week, he's just talking to your average Joe six-pack, yeah, right? Yeah. There in the marketplace yeah. as, he's, as he's working as a tent maker. Right. He's not, we don't have the institutional church like we have it today. He's not, yeah. you know, running a parish, right. you know, like a right. parish priest would. Uh, that's something that I think we've, we often lose sight of. This is something, too, I've wondered about. Well, two things. One, why he was sent to the Gentiles. Yeah. It seemed like he's got all the credentials to speak to the, but I know, to the Jewish people. But sure. I, I know a part of his methodology, he would go to these 
communities and address the Jews there. Right. So he was speaking to them. But um, so if you can address that. And the, um, the other question I have is, you know, I know like early on trying to preach on these texts and you're trying to, you know, have, you know, a strong affirmation of the, the authority of Peter, you know, and he opposes Peter and challenges him on the doctrine and stuff. And, and just well, and let's just be clear, clear here. He doesn't say that Peter has rejected the apostolic teaching. Mm-hmm. He's basically complaining that Peter's acting hypocritically. Right. right? Yeah. And he says that they're not acting straight. They're, they're not walking in a straightforward way. Right. Right. Um, so it's not that he's opposing Peter's doctrine. That right. is actually a really interesting point. Right. It's more because his behavior. Yeah. It's his behavior that yeah. he's really upset yeah. with because he doesn't think that's it's a great point. Consistent yeah. with the doctrine that he preaches. Yeah. And what, so we've got this new book co-written with Brant Petrie and John Kincaid. It's out through Erdman's called Paul, a New Covenant Jew. And what we want to, of course, Paul is a diaspora Jew and he's a Roman citizen according to Acts and all that. But never lived there. Right. Until the end. Well, he's, yeah. Yeah, we, we don't really know about his oh. early life. We can't mm-hmm. really reconstruct that. Um, but what we really wanted to focus in this book on is, first off, the undisputed letters of Paul, because there are scholars who say, well, he didn't write this letter. So, all right, well, I'll just go with the letters everybody agrees he wrote. So, you know, we won't base our conclusions on somebody, something that someone will say is dubious. But, uh, but then the second thing is highlighting Paul as a new covenant Jew, mm-hmm. right? What is Paul's relationship to Judaism? Mm-hmm. It's something that we don't think enough about. People will talk about his conversion. And going back to Christoph Stendhal, um, people have been nervous about talking about Paul's conversion because it would seem to imply a change in religious affiliation such that he's no longer Jew and now he's a Christian, right? A rejection mm-hmm. of Judaism. And people today might say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, it's a huge deal because if you look at Germany, what happens at the beginning of the 20th century, and a lot of the scholarship actually comes out of there, uh, what actually happens is sort of anti-Semitism that is really scary. And we still have traces of it today. And that was bigger than just Germany, oh, too. Oh, yes. It, was it, like, is. it is making it come back in Europe. It, so it's, I, it's making it yeah, come back today. Yeah. And we still see it in in in. in the way some people talk about Paul, mm-hmm. as if Paul rejected Judaism, mm-hmm. right? So we want to understand, well, how is Paul still a Jew? Right. And yet, right, he is proclaiming a new covenant, yeah. right? So we really wanted to zero in on the promise that we have in Jeremiah 31. Mm-hmm. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made at Sinai. So there's something unlike the covenant at Sinai. But this isn't like a rejection of Judaism. This is in the Jewish scriptures, mm-hmm. right? That there is going to come, be, there, there will come this age where there's a transcending of right. the Torah. So we wanted to highlight this in, in this book and recognize what Paul is talking about in Christ is in continuity with the scriptures of Israel. And so with his understanding as a Pharisee, but then also, in some ways, uh, a transcending, right? There's something that has come in Christ that we couldn't have anticipated. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it occurred to the mind of man. So, so, I mean, what happens in Christ is Paul is not just rethinking the law. 
He's thinking what it means to be God. Mm-hmm. Because now, we're in the past, you know, you'd say the Shema, and you'd say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. But Paul is now working Jesus in, for example, 1 Corinthians 8. He's working Jesus into the Shema so that there's one God, but in a sense, God has another self. He's right. Father, but He's also Son, right? And so, in Paul's letters, we have the beginnings of Christian theology, right? And so that was a big part of why we wanted to write the book yeah, and, yeah. And, and really get into some of these thorny issues. Of So the first chapter deals with what kind of Jew is Paul? Is he a former Jew? Some people describe mm-hmm. him that way. Uh, that's not right. Um, is he a radical? Some, some people say he is a, there's a, a movement called the Radical New Perspective on Paul. It says Paul was a Torah observant Jew and he doesn't depart in any way from the Judaism of his day. Problem with that is, what do you mean by Judaism of his day? Right, there are all kinds of different mm-hmm. Jews. Uh, and how do you account for the New Covenant? So we, we use the language of New Covenant. In the second chapter, we look at the apocalyptic dimension of Paul's teaching, in particular the heavenly dimension of Paul's teaching, the role of angels, the role of the heavenly Jerusalem, and the identity of Jesus as the heavenly Messiah, the hidden Messiah. Yeah. Uh, there's a tradition in Judaism that the Messiah is going to be revealed. That he mm. existed before time. See this in the first Enoch. And he'll be revealed in the last days. And we think Paul is tapping into those traditions. The third chapter is on uh, Paul's Christology. So how does he understand who the person mm-hmm. of Jesus is? Fourth chapter is on um, the question of atonement. What is the cross? Why the cross for Paul? The fifth chapter is on justification. And the last chapter is on, on the Lord's Supper, on, on the Eucharist. Right, Paul. right. And we think that in all of these areas, understanding Paul as a new covenant Jew is essential, right? Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. And most yeah. people don't think about justification within the context of the new covenant. Right. And so we want to help kind of reconnect those yeah. dots that we, yeah. we find there in Paul. Yeah, and, and like the fact that he was, this is, you know, I've wrestled with too that as he describes it, he has one abnormally born, you know, seemed to, right. you know, called outside of this group. Right. And he seems to, you know, he brings all this energy of missionary zeal and kind of represents kind of the evangelical nature of the church. And Peter right. is the office and like preserving, and Paul is just pushing, mm-hmm. just pushing. You know? <laughs> well, but, to be fair, in the book of Acts, the first Gentile who's baptized is probably meant to be seen as Cornelius, okay. who's not baptized by Paul, Peter, but by Peter. And that's one of the key things in Acts. I have, I'm actually teaching a graduate class right now on, on Luke and Acts. I teach this from time to time as an elective at the Augustine Institute Graduate School. And it's fascinating to see what Luke is doing. So Luke sets up Paul's ministry by showing us that Peter is the initiator of the Gentile mission. And there's a couple of things in That's that. a great point. It's a couple of th- <laughs> yeah, it's, and there's a couple of things that are significant. So you read about Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. That's in chapter 9. Uh-huh. Then right after that, it's almost like, you know, a television show. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like you get like yeah. the camera fade away from Paul yeah. and his experience on the road and his baptism. And then in chapter 10, you get the story of Cornelius. So before Luke says, oh, and Paul became the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Before he says that, he wants to show you Peter did it first. Yeah. And so the assumption there is that mm-hmm. everybody respects Peter's authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the assumption is 
Once I show you Peter did this, you can't argue Paul is doing something that's not authentic or genuine. Right. 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 So then you have Cornelius's baptism in 10 and in 11. It's related. And we have, uh, of course, Peter. And at the end of 11, we read a little bit about Paul going up to Jerusalem. And then in 12, we have uh, Peter delivered from prison. And then right after, it says after he was delivered from prison, um, Herod wanted to kill him. It says, well, obviously, you know, it was dangerous for Peter in Jerusalem. Then it says, and Peter went to another place. And then it gets back to Paul. Mm. And now, really, for the bulk of the rest of the book of Acts, Peter makes an appearance in the Council of Jerusalem in 15. Mm. But the bulk of the rest of the letter is about Paul. Mm. And one of the amazing things about Acts is what it shows is that all the stuff Peter does, then Paul does. Mm. So Peter gives a speech on Pentecost in the temple. Paul ends up giving a speech in a synagogue to begin uh -huh. his ministry. Peter performs a miracle where he heals a man who's been crippled since birth. Paul does the same thing, mm. right? When Peter gives his speech and he talks about Jesus as the Messiah, he quotes from Psalm 16. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. And so Jesus yeah. rose from the dead. There's a great line in that speech where Peter says, I think I can speak to you confidently that David is dead. <laughs> he died, right? I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, David died. But wait a minute, what's this line about I won't let my Holy One experience corruption? And Peter says, ultimately, this is about the Messiah. Yeah. He's the one who is saved from death and Jesus rose from the dead. Paul does the same thing in his speech later on. Huh. So you have all these parallels between Peter and Paul to show us, in a sense, that what God did in Peter, he now does. What Christ does in Peter, he does in Paul. In fact, it's really interesting because the book of Acts begins. In the first book, Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to teach and to do. All that he began to do and teach. So the book of Acts is what he continues to do and teach, right? Mm. So Jesus is still alive. Mm. And in Acts 9, when you know Paul experiences the Lord, he's like, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, who are you? I'm Jesus. Paul doesn't say, oh, I'm not persecuting you, Jesus, just your disciples. No, <laughs> the point is, by persecuting the disciples, he's persecuting because Christ and the disciples are yeah, one. Right. Right? So the key there is recognizing how Christ does in his mystical body, to use Pauline language, what he did in his personal body. Mm. So remember what happened to Jesus at baptism? The Holy Spirit came upon him. Jesus at the beginning of Acts says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or right. what he says that in the gospel, uh -huh. and we see it happen yeah. in Acts. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. And then after the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the gospel of Luke, what happens? He goes to a synagogue and he gives a speech announcing his identity as the Messiah, mm -hmm. essentially. What happens in the book of Acts? After the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, Peter goes into the place of worship, not the synagogue, but the temple. And he proclaims Jesus as the Messiah from the scriptures, just like Jesus did. And then Jesus heals a lame man. Peter heals a lame man. Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. The apostles are arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. It's like, you know, deja vu all over again. Right, right. right. And the idea is what Jesus did in his personal body, he now does in his mystical body, the church. Yeah. So then he does it in Peter, and then he does it in Paul. Ah. So Paul is just as genuine as an apostle as Peter is, right? Because it's the same spirit working in Paul in Acts that was working in Peter. Yeah. Right? 
Do you think it, it's forcing a false division to talk about a Pauline dimension, a Petrine dimension of the church? Or? Yeah, I mean, in some, in some ways it's helpful, right? Yeah. Because, you know, Peter is given a unique gift, for mm -hmm. example, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's given the keys of the kingdom. And all the disciples are given the authority of binding and loosing in Matthew 18, but they're not specifically given the keys. Right. right? By the way, that's interesting because, you know, we talked about the Pharisees a minute ago. We talked about that line where Jesus says, describes in the Pharisees, sit on Moses's seat. Mm -hmm. And the Greek word there for seat is cathedra. Mm -hmm. So we get to word cathedral. Right. Yeah. Right. The bishop has a church where yeah. he has his teaching authority and the teaching mm -hmm. authority symbolizing the chair. Mm -hmm. And then it's interesting in Matthew 23, by the way, Jesus says that the scribes and Pharisees, literally in the Greek, it's they key shut the kingdom, kliate. Uh, the word for key in Greek is kleidos. So they, they, they lock with a key the kingdom, he says. Mm. And then he says they bind heavy burdens on others. Well, Jesus gives to Peter the keys. Mm. And Jesus gives to Peter the authority to bind mm. and to loose. Mm. And so what the Pharisees have in Matthew is given to Peter. Mm. right? And what happens to the Pharisees? They're hypocrites, though. Yeah. What happens to Peter? He renounces Jesus in the passion narrative. So just because you have the teaching authority doesn't mean that you always act in a way that's faithful <laughs> to the right, church. And we've right. seen that in church history. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, it's clear in the book of Acts, Paul is described as an apostle. So even though he wasn't there, I, I like to point out to people that in Galatians, Paul says that before he began his ministry, he went to Arabia. And he talks about how he was there for you know three years. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, three years later, you know, he goes to Jerusalem. And it's fascinating because how long did the disciples stay with Jesus? Was Before their ministry began and after the resurrection, they're with him for three years. So I wonder if Paul's period in Arabia is sort of like that that spiritual time uh -huh. with Jesus, right? And like what city would that have been in? Do we know? Well, Arabia is, yeah. you know, not just a city it's a it's a region right, particularly it's right. a desert yeah so it's ascetical you know okay. he's probably spending time fasting and praying we know paul fasts yeah, yeah. Well, at least from the book of acts yeah clear. yeah to me it's kind of problematic it's like okay we say apostles they're foundation stones they're witnesses of the resurrection and Paul's coming along after the resurrection. So yeah. I assume like he's breaking all this stuff. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it is interesting, right? In the sense that he's not with Jesus during his public ministry. At the same time, Jesus does appear to Paul, right? We, we see that. And he commissions Paul. So it's fascinating. In, in the book of Acts, it says that um, Paul and Barnabas were sent to go up to Jerusalem to consult, they had to go up to Jerusalem to meet with the elders and the apostles uh, about this issue of whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised, right? I mean, that was a major obstacle for a lot of Gentiles, right? I mean, do you make the cut or not? You know, <laughs> it's going to be tough. And uh, so Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He's been telling people they don't need to be circumcised. And of course, we know Peter said the same thing in Acts 10. So Again, Acts sets it up to show us Peter's already been doing what Paul's been doing. But they go up to Jerusalem, and so there is a sense that the original 12 have a unique place in the church. Paul says in Galatians that they're known as the pillars. Mm -hmm. So Christians were identifying Peter, James, and John in particular as, as the pillars. It's yeah. fascinating. Um, but 
anyway, uh, I, uh, James, Peter, and John. Uh, yeah. Which is interesting because that's actually in, the, in our canon, how the Catholic epistles are arranged, James, Peter, and yeah. John. Yeah, yeah. To me, I like, I've got a little icon in my office mm. that has Peter and, and Paul, like, embracing. Oh, yeah, that's classic, yeah. Yeah. No, those, and, that's a great image. Yeah, and there's something about, I, I mean, I like to think of it that way, like this evangelical energy that the Protestants are often good at showing us, you know, oh, yeah. and that... Yeah. And also the the conservation of the institutional church, the office holders. But um, you know, now it seems like we're, in, we're you know it's a time of great great evangelical Catholicism that's needed. But anyway, I, I just I love to me that's just a fascinating mystery, and to see that in Peter and Paul. Right, and I, you know it's sort of interesting. The early church they they sort of recognized mm. the parallel because how was Rome founded? Romulus and Remus, mm. right? You have two brothers in the pagan mythology mm -hmm. that founded Rome. And so it's not seen as a coincidence that the founding members of the church at Rome, it's in some sense, the church is already there before Paul gets there, but is Peter and Paul, right? Mm. They're often grouped together yeah, as, right. as a sort of the, a new yeah. founding, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's worth mentioning. So in Galatians, there is this controversy between Peter and Paul. Uh, where Paul actually rebukes Peter very strongly. But make no mistake about it, Paul still recognizes Peter as an authentic apostle. And in 1 Corinthians, you know, he talks about how some people are baptized into Peter's name, some people are being baptized into Apollos' name. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he says, wait a minute, we're all part of the one body. And implicit is that, in that is, He's, he's not saying, you know, Peter represents some other form of Christianity I don't belong to. No. You know, he recognizes uh, that, that Peter is an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ right, as he right, is. Right. And I, I find one of the things to me personally that gives such credibility to Paul, he's not just some loose cannon, but that... You know, his communities love him so much with oh. those letters of exchange. Yes. Because you always think of him as this tough fighter guy. He's well, they it. loved him, but not always, <laughs> right? And you get the sense that, you know, he's writing to this church that's marked by division and sexual immorality and issues with gossip in the church. I mean, we don't have these problems today, <laughs> but imagine how terrible that would be, you know? And Paul's, Paul's communities are so human. They, yeah. they, they sound you know, like they're experiencing the same yeah. challenges that we experience in mm -hmm. our own day. And um, and so there is conflict you know, with some of the communities in some cases. And yet, as you recognize, as you, as you explain, um, they, they clearly love him. And you see this, for example, in 2 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. where to, 2 Corinthians scholars debate, you know, how we should understand that letter because it, it it changes dramatically in tone. Some people suggest that there are different letters that have been sort of put together into mm -hmm. one letter. Other people suggest that he just started writing the letter and things changed and just writing the letter, <laughs> which makes sense to me actually. But they, they, one of the key things that uh, I want to highlight is, yeah, Peter Peter is recognized by Paul as a you know authentic apostle, but there are people in the church who are suspicious of Paul, mm. who want to say that he's a Johnny-come-lately. Who is this guy? 
which is the reason Paul has to insist on the fact that I really am an apostle, all right? Mm-hmm. I really am commissioned by Christ. And, yeah. and and he says at one point in Galatians, who those, you know, the, these other apostles are makes no difference to me. Yeah. And, and he's not saying, I don't recognize them as authentic. Yeah. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, what I've received, I didn't receive from human authority. Mm-hmm. I received it from Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so you get that. It can sound boastful, right? And it sounds like an evangelical megachurch just down the street from us yeah. that the pastor is saying the same thing. You know, I don't need a church to commission me. I have my own revelation. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 the, and the way that that is borne out for Paul is in his suffering, right? Mm-hmm. We are to be conformed in Romans 8. It's, I think it's sort of like at the center of Paul's message. We are to be conformed to the image of the Son. Mm-hmm. It's not just enough that we get out of hell. Right. Salvation isn't just fire insurance. Yeah. Not just getting out of hell. Salvation is becoming like Christ. And that is going to entail suffering. It means dying to yourself. Paul's gospel isn't just that you become a better, you know, you. Paul McCartney has a song, A Better Me, right? Mm-hmm. He talks about how sometimes you know, he lets his, his lover, his wife in the song, down and he, and he just wishes he could be a better me. That's not Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is, I just want to be a better me. I have to die to myself. Yeah. I have to suffer. Yeah. I have to become like Christ. And so that's not a popular message to proclaim. Here's, you know, as he says in uh, the book of Acts, he says, through many tribulations, we will enter into the kingdom of God. Right? Yeah. That's, that, you know, this is really not getting down to brass tacks of the gospel. Or as he says in Romans 8, we are heirs with Christ, provided, he says, we suffer with him. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful verse. Suffering isn't, possible. Suffering isn't likely. Suffering isn't a probability. It's inevitable, according to Paul, because we're supposed to become like Jesus. Yeah. And we should repeat, too, that he, he goes to Rome to confer with Peter to present his... Well, and he goes, no, yeah, he goes to yeah. Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Yeah, he goes yeah, sorry, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah, he says, I laid out my gospel to those mm-hmm. who are apostles before me, yeah. lest I be running in vain. Right, right. Right? So, right. yeah, there... This goes back to, you know, Bauer, uh, F.C. Bauer, famous biblical scholar, who basically wanted to imagine Christianity as a a political struggle between the Pauline church and the Petrine church. And Peter represents Gentile, I'm sorry, Peter represents Jewish Christianity. And there's some truth to this. He says, Paul says he's sent to the circumcised. that Peter sends to the circumcised, and that Paul represents the you know, Hellenistic Christianity. There's a sharp break between there. The, the problem with Bauer's model is he overlooks the passages that point to, you know, the partnership, the communion that Paul has with yeah. Peter. So you get kind of a caricature of, right. of that relationship if you just look at one story in Galatians and you don't pay attention to, say, um, Acts or other aspects of the canonical witness, Second Peter. Right. I love Second Peter. It's how we start our new book, because in Second Peter you get this amazing line where we read. Um, uh, it's the earliest statement about Paul's letters outside of Paul's letters. We have there is something he says. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So here we have a letter attributed to Peter, where Peter is seen as as recognizing wisdom is given to Paul. 
Speaking of this as he does in all his letters, and I love this next line, there are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Can you imagine that? That people think Paul is hard to understand? <laughs> According to Second Peter, Peter thought that, right? And, and then, and what then, chapter and verse? This is Second Peter three, okay. verse sixteen, fifteen and sixteen. Right? There are some things in them hard to understand. It's hilarious. I, mean, I, I, I love the way Peter's remembered here because you see, you know, a fisherman. He's reading these letters of Paul. Hey, I got to admit, these are hard to understand. <laughs> and then next line, the next line, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. It's a good thing we don't have that problem today, you know, <laughs> twisting Paul's meaning. Uh, and it's, it's, it's gone on for 2,000 years. All the major theological debates uh, have often revolved around Paul. You think of the Protestant Reformation, but you go back to the early church and Marcionism. I mean, what Marcion did was say, well, I'm going to go with Paul and I'm cutting the Old Testament out of my Bible, yeah. basically, right? Yeah. So uh, not just Protestant Reformation, going all the way back to Marcion, Paul yeah. is often at the center of these theological debates. And he is hard to understand. And you got two, you got two um, options when you come to that. One is to say, well, then I'm not reading Paul. Or you can say, well, Jesus calls us greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the part people like to leave out because people want the touchy-feely and the emotional. Uh -huh. But Jesus says we have to love him with all our mind. We have to love the Lord yeah. with all our mind. That involves study. The, the word disciple literally means student. Yeah. We are, we're not all called to get degrees in theology. Of course not. Most of the saints didn't have any academic degrees or formal academic training. But we all are called to study the scriptures more carefully, to, to become better disciples, better students, by deepening our understanding. Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your emotions. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Right. Yeah, and so this is what I find, at least for me, you know, when I'm studying these letters and I'm thinking deeply about these letters, I'm growing in my own spiritual life because I'm allowing, you know, the Word of God to challenge me. And uh, there are all kinds of difficult issues, yes, but at the end of the day, you know, you got to dig to find the diamonds. Yeah. They're not just laying on the surface. You got to go down deep. What would be your advice uh, to priests, deacons that are preaching in their study of the scriptures in preparation for preaching? Right. Well, um, well, it depends on what you're, you're, you're preaching on. The first thing I'd say is, uh, as various popes, recent popes like Benedict have underscored, the primary aspect of the homily is to explain the scriptures, right? I mean, the model here is the road to Emmaus. You have the mm -hmm. two disciples. Jesus opens to them the scriptures, and then they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. But many people think you can jump right to the breaking of the bread without opening up the scriptures. Yeah. And why were they able to recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread? It was because he was opening up the scriptures. And then, especially as the text makes clear, it's not the New Testament, it's the Old Testament that's in view. You know, there's a recent Pew study where people have uh, expressed, Catholics are expressing uh, all sorts of problematic understandings of the Eucharist. You know, the Catholic 
They don't, they don't believe mm-hmm. in the real presence of the Eucharist anymore. And uh, many Catholics don't, at least. And, you know, people are scrambling to try to figure out why this is and the sociological explanations. And, uh, you know, to me, I think the answer is really clear. How many Catholics know the scriptures of Israel? Mm-hmm. If you don't know the scriptures of Israel, you're not going to recognize them in the breaking of the bread. That's the lesson from the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. So the homily is supposed to prepare us for the for the Eucharist, not by primarily focusing on the saint of the day, not by focusing on some, you know, devotional practice that's Mm -hmm. associated with the feast day. Mm -hmm. It comes after the gospel reading for a reason, Mm -hmm. right? The the, the homily is supposed to open up the scriptures. So the first thing I'd say is priests and deacons need to study those scriptures. They need to read those scriptures before they get up. They can't just wing it. Mm -hmm. It is a sacred responsibility. And why don't people believe in the, the real presence? I think it's because they don't know the scriptures of Israel. Nobody's breaking it open to them. That's mm-hmm. that's my that's that's I I'm I feel very strongly about that. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is you know there are great resources out there uh, that help un, you know, mm-hmm. unlock the scriptures. There's a, a wonderful commentary, the commentary on sacred scripture, which is really accessible for pastors and preachers. Is this uh, the one with Mary Healy? Yeah, Mary yeah. Healy, very helpful mm-hmm. uh, commentary series. Um, you know, plug my book on Paul here. Mm-hmm. But there are so many great resources out there like like those things. Um, and I'd also just say for lay people, you know, we, we all need to read the scriptures. We It, it can't be an optional part. Yeah. You know, of, I remember one time I was at a, you know, like this, I was at a conference. Mm-hmm speaking at a Catholic conference. This woman comes up to me and says, now, aren't you one of the speakers? I said, yes. She said, I thought I saw your picture on the flyer. I said, yes. She said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, I've been talking about the kingdom of God and the gospels. And she said, oh, I'm Marian. I'm not biblical. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I think her exact words were, I'm into Mary. I'm not into scripture. Yeah. And it's, no. Read the Magnificat of Mary in the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. There we see Mary remembered as someone who is well-versed in the scriptures of Israel. Yeah. Her prayer sounds just like the prayer of Hannah. Mm-hmm. Mary prayed from the scriptures. So you can't say you're Marian and you're not biblical. To be Marian would be to fall deeply in love with the scriptures, yeah. right? Yeah. Before the word incarnate was within her, she had already in- encountered the word inspired. Yeah. In the text. Mm-hmm. And so this is just, oh, it's so important for lay Catholics to keep their eyes on, on Scripture. You know, I just heard a great quote from St. Alfonso Sigori, doctor, the moral doctor, you know, doctor for his teaching on moral sure. theology. And he talked about, like, the how the, the Scriptures, he knows of no better way, mm-hmm. like, to encounter the love of God than through the Scripture. That's right. Oh, I'd love to get that quotation. Yeah. That's great. I love that. And again, I love Thomas Aquinas. I've studied Aquinas. Probably my favorite book after the Bible is Thomas Aquinas' commentary on John. But we will never read Thomas Aquinas at Mass. I love John Paul II. One of the great moments of my life was I got a private audience with John Paul II. I'll never forget it. We will never read John Paul II's encyclicals instead of Scripture. Second Vatican Council made very clear that the soul that the study of the sacred page is the soul of sacred theology. 
And uh, I think for a lot of Catholics, the Bible is an away game. You know, uh, that's what the Protestants do. You know? Yeah, that's what yeah. non-Catholic Christians do. No, the Bible is a Catholic book, right? And I, I, I marvel at, I marvel at what the Protestants get out of the Bible for their personal life and, you know, and their their direction and guidance. And, yes. And I've I've tried to start doing that more recently too, like stuff maybe I need to be healed from or trying to overcome something that I, just thinking, untwisting thinking. And I literally just went to Google and just typed in the topic, where does the Bible say this? <laughs> and then all the these passages, and just That's to pray. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. The air of our spiritual life, as you know, is prayer, mm -hmm. right? We cannot um, succeed in our spiritual life if we're not in prayer. Uh, this is the constant teaching of fathers and doctors of the church, even in the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus constantly at prayer. You know, and yet, you know, first thing we do when we're busy, we cross prayer off our mm -hmm. things to do list. It's the worst thing we could do. Mm -hmm. But the problem for a lot of people is they don't really know how to pray. Yeah. Because I think for a lot of people, prayer is just a monologue. It's just sort of like a laundry list. Mm -hmm. oh, God, give me this. God, give me that. Bless this. Bless that. Amen. You know, uh, or I'm going to say my Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be. I'll say a rosary even, you know. 53 Hail Marys, if you put them all together. Um, but the reason the rosary is powerful is because it's supposed to be a meditation on Scripture. Mm -hmm. All the, the rosary is, as John Paul II says, is it's a compendium of the gospel, right? So we're not supposed to focus on saying the words of the Hail Mary. You're supposed to think about the first joyful mystery, which is the Annunciation, the second joyful mystery, the Visitation. These are all from Scripture, you know. Uh, the glorious mysteries, we have the Assumption and the, and the Coronation, but uh, virtually all the mysteries other than those two, they're all taken from, mm -hmm. from Scripture. And um, this is essential to realize. Prayer can't just be a monologue. It has to be a dialogue, right? You can't have a friendship with someone you never have a conversation with. You have to, you have, to have a conversation. You have to have a dialogue. And we all know people who don't talk with us, they talk at us. And you can't have real relationships mm -hmm. with people like that. They're not really interested in what you have to say. Right. They're just waiting for you to take a breath so right. they can say the next thing, right? <laughs> and and that, that's just a frustrating, so frustrating. If you love someone, you have to spend time talking with uh -huh. them. One of my favorite passages in the Catechism talks about Moses as a model for prayer. And it says that Moses spoke to God often and at length. Both of those things are necessary, right? I mean, I know people I speak to often, my next door neighbor, every time I take out the trash, see him every Monday, we're taking out the trash barrels at the same time. But we don't talk at length, right? <laughs> I don't really know my next door neighbor that well, uh -huh. right? I mean, we see each other, yeah. we talk, but we don't have much of a like in-depth relationship, right? We talk often, we don't talk at length. And then there are people that we may have had deep conversations with, but we don't keep up. And right. so we drift apart, we right. fall apart, you know. We have to reconnect. Why? Because we disconnected. So in order to have a real ongoing friendship, you have to do two things. You have to talk often and at length. The way we do that is in prayer, but you can't do that if you think prayer is a monologue. So how do you hear God speak to you? It's in Scripture. Scripture is where God speaks to us. Mm -hmm. And if we're not reading Scripture as part of our prayer life, if we're not meditating on the rosary, it's a monologue. And, you know, what kind of relationship can you have right. when you're doing all the talking right. and not listening? Yeah. Well, Dr. Michael Barber, thank you oh, so much. Thank you so for much. Talking to us.